0: Hello and welcome to this special two-part Faber Poetry Podcast. My name is George Miller and I'm very pleased to say that my guest in this programme is one of this country's most distinguished poets, David Harsant, whose latest collection, Fire Songs, is published this August. I met David at home in London on a hot July afternoon to record this two-part interview in which he talks about and reads from the new book. David Harsent is the author of some ten previous collections of verse, for which he has received many awards and much critical acclaim. In addition to poetry, he also writes libretti, and is a long-term collaborator with composer Harrison Birtwistle, with whom he wrote the operas Gawain and The Minotaur. He has also written crime fiction and for television. Reviewing his previous collection, Night, in The Independent, Fiona Sampson said... Truly significant poets write like no one else, and David Harsand is both sui generis and unsurpassed. If anything, I would say that this new collection attains even greater heights than night. Heights of linguistic concentration, haunting imagery by turn dreamlike and nightmarish, thematic complexity in the interweaving of the book's recurring preoccupations, and sheer visceral power. In recent years we've grown increasingly familiar with the destructive force of water, the nightmare of a world slowly drowning more common than an overheating world consumed by flames. But although water and fire sometimes coexist in this book, it is the power of the latter which runs insistently through it. Fire is man-made and natural, fires that erase and destroy and transform. If fire is inescapable, the recurrent figure of the rat in fire songs is ineradicable, Survivor of fire and flood, as Harsent says. It's a creature that occupies the margin of our dreams, and emerges unscathed after the apocalypse with designs on inheriting the earth. Harsent writes, Rapacious like us, Prolific like us, Omnivorous like us, Prodigal like us, Unremitting like us, Like us, a killer of its own kind. In this first part of the interview, we talk about fire, war and its aftermath, and the rat. In the second part, we go on to discuss three poems David wrote in response to his experience of living with tinnitus, and conclude with a discussion of religion, in particular the disquieting figure of the trickster Christ, and a complete reading of the first of the fire songs. We started, unsurprisingly, with fire, and the opening image of the first fire song, a firebug, rising whistling from the pyre, built for Anne Askew, the Protestant martyr, tortured and executed under Henry the VIII." The fire songs
1: came from that single image of the firebug. Well, what was in my mind was Larkin's instruction, I'm not quite sure whether it was quite from his deathbed, burn everything. And I had this image in my head after a while, after, after writing the first bit of, of, of that, of a man going out into his garden and making a bonfire on which to burn everything. And, uh, you know, when you look at flames, you look at a fire, sort of shapes and so forth occur. Well, with this, looking at the, looking at the flames in my mind's eye, images, you know, when I was thinking through the thing, started to occur. and one of the images that impressed itself on me was of Anne Askew, a Protestant martyr burned at the stake in Smithfield at uh, Smithfield after having been tortured in the White Tower. And I was brought up a Baptist and Protestant martyrs are quite thin on the ground. <laughs> so um, I knew about Anne Askew. Virtually from Sunday school days, they didn't mind what they taught you then, the more gruesome the better. And then the other fire songs came along because, in a progressive sort of way, and I could see after a while that what I was beginning to write about was what my younger son refers to as the heat death of the planet, Um, (laughs) i.e. what will happen if we don't stop degrading and polluting and, and... And burning. And burning, and burning. But also it had to do with other... I mean, I write fictions, I don't, I don't write from life, I don't write autobiographically, I rarely use an image from life. Um, I use an image that I've imagined or conjured up or might have seen a long time ago. In other words, I furnish the poems with fictional opportunity in the way that a novelist uh, does his novel. But I could see that there was a, an interpersonal aspect to this. So one of the fire songs does have to do with burning letters, photographs, journals, poems diaries and so on and so forth. And I I think I sort of had at the back of my mind, I've said it since, and I don't know whether it's true, (laughs) that I had at the back of my mind that artist who destroyed everything he owned as a kind of artistic gesture. I couldn't quite see the point, but nonetheless, and I couldn't quite see how he could destroy everything he owned. I couldn't see how that was possible. But nonetheless, the notion of, you know, sort of auto-obliteration or obliterating your history anyway interested me in in that respect and the interpersonal aspect of it sort of um you know uh, relationship aspect of it and then there is another poem which has sort of fire song which has some sort of historical aspect to it um so you know fires through the ages fires of destruction fires of death fires of pillage uh, and so forth through 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 history it's quite random probably because i'm no historian And then the last poem, uh, Part of the World's End, really is about the world's end, I think, or it became to be about that. I didn't set out with any kind of intent, but I did have at the back of my mind a progression. Um, I said to my editor, Matthew Hollis, when we were talking about them, and I said, the fire songs I wrote in a kind of fever. You know, things fell to hand in the most extraordinary way. And as is usual, I was... I was dreaming certain images that were occurring in the poems, but, but the, the, these were much fiercer dreams and much more compelling dreams, and I remembered them all. Um, well, I remember them all in a fragmentary kind of way. And the dreams did furnish some of the images, not very many, because dream images are usually not so much surreal as farcical, but um, one or two of them sort of worked for the, for the process.
0: And I suppose, going back to the um, the juxtaposition of fire and water, the difference is that fire is both a, a natural destructive force and also, as you were saying, is a is a man made destructive force. So we can have book burnings or the burnings of people or the burnings of cities or libraries, as well as forest fires or, or natural carrying fires. So it's got it's got more uh, intrinsic sort of polyvalency built into it, hasn't mm. it? Yes,
1: yes, that's right. I mean what. There's a kind of marriage in the destructiveness, in the aspect of destructiveness in in water. You think of the floods that we had last year in this country, and and it takes very little to just tip the balance from what we call normality, just a, a normal life, humdrumness, or something, into something really, you know, life changingly dreadful. Um, I mean, nothing in this country ever happens really that's as bad as the sort of um, fire and water events that occur in other countries. But nonetheless, uh, what we take to be normal life, what we take to be the sort of human quotidian, you know, is very quickly overturned. There's a poem in in the book um, called Armistice, in which, and I didn't know this was gonna but fire and water sort of meet along a seam um, I'm not quite sure where I got this image from, but I think it probably did have something to do with when you see, you know, a, a, a scene of destruction. It might be a bushfire in Australia, um, you know, one of those colossal fires that's sweeping towards houses and townships and so on and so forth, or else something like the tsunami or, or colossal floods, Hurricane Katrina and that kind of thing, where, you know, fire and water seem actually to operate In the same zone as it were and Armistice, um, I I didn't know until I got to a certain line in Armistice that it was a cynical poem, Uh, um, the line being and blonde girls do their duty as they should. Up until then I thought it really had to do with sort of things peaceful and cessation of war
0: (laughs) and so forth. I thought the line about hard light was, I think that comes before it doesn't it, I think that was already a a sign that something was Already, uh, um, where light is shed hard to dispel dark. I thought the way right. you turned that line and put hard at the front yeah. suggested something there was yeah. that the light wasn't, there wasn't entirely a benign light.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, the whole poem is heading in that direction, uh, it seems to me, but it didn't seem to me at the time. I had a dream a very, very long time ago, 25, 30 years ago, the dream was of the peaceable kingdom and there was a, a river and grassy banks and on the banks brightly coloured animals, rather beautiful, brightly coloured animals, horses, I mean quadrupeds and mammals, you know, kind of, I mean not lions, tigers, but they were brightly coloured. They were sort of almost pastel colour. That's my take on the peaceable kingdom and has been ever since. But, but, and, and did, and but did that seem an entirely benign kingdom when you, when you totally, drank it? Totally benign kingdom, yes, absolutely. Foreign to my nature, probably. <laughs> I thought this poem was going to be about that. It was commissioned by Caroline Duffy for 1914 Poetry Remembers, so, for the, you know, the Great War. Well, I, I won't try and sort of uh, uh, over-explain the poem, but, but simply say that it, it did. It, it, I thought it was going to start out as being a poem about the peaceable kingdom, and it turned into something much more frightening and much and and negative, and harmful and controlling, or to do with control. It's to do with control. It itself is not. Okay, it's called armistice. And I should say that when I got to this line where blonde girls do their duties, they should. After I'd written it, I didn't sort of go, gosh, I didn't start back from the page going, good gracious me. But after a while, I thought, yes, that's where the poem turns. That's where that's where I found out what this poem is up to. You know, that's the point at which I found that out. It's actually about the untruth of any armistice, because where is there never? ever a small war going on in in the world. So, Armistice. In the peaceable kingdom, things go from bad to good by way of a pleasant word, where creatures are hand-fed, the lynx and the lamb, and walk untroubled in the sunlit wood of wild fruits and hymnal birdsong, where children are led daily to the sea of harmony, and go as one head-first to sound in a boundless green, Where everyone is blood brother to someone, Where light is shed hard to dispel the dark, Where ranks of the would-be sad are gentled And set aside then to be cured, Where blonde girls do their duty as they should, Where language is trimmed to be better understood, where those who mistake the road out for the road to recovery are helped back by a rolling barricade of white roses and bramble, where fire and flood creep to meet and bond along the seam, where food is brought as song is brought, as sleep is brought, As bride to bridegroom, mother to long-lost son, Set side by side to music and applause. Where love is stalled by pity, Where the crucified man steps down, The sopping bud of his heart in his outstretched hand, While the dead silence that draws out Over battlefield and potter's field Is what remains of the truth of it and must be left unsaid.
0: Thank you. There are lots of subtle but quite sinister signs of coercion and manipulation, aren't there, from manipulation. from language to, you know, the would-be sad, not being allowed to be sad. Yeah. It's as if
1: this is the deal in the Armistice, that, that people won't speak of what happened. You know this thing about... Um, I certainly know it's true in the Second World War because my father fought in the Second World War that soldiers were told not to tell their loved ones when they got home what they'd seen and what they'd been through. And there's that sort of feeling about it and a feeling, yes, a feeling of kind of moral coercion going on. all came as quite a surprise to me. I don't want to over this kind of, I didn't know what I was doing, but it turned out wonderful kind of thing. <laughs> but, but there is a point, I think, at which you understand, you begin to understand you know, what the poem is doing and where the heart of the poem lies and where the growth centre of the poem is, if you like. And sometimes that's when you start revising because you realise kind of what you were really up to and that there's there are things that are wrong or inappropriate
0: or superfluous or something. In other words, you're reshaping the poem. And at that stage, our formal considerations coming to the fore a bit more if, if, in the, if in the first stage ideas are are coming out less in a less mediated way you know looking at many of these poems is a great sense of formal control and knowing exactly what kind of effects you can achieve with language and, and going yeah. about and affecting them in that poem you read the placing of of the where's for yeah. example the way the lines break which yeah. you know how that shifts is that something that in the early drafts was 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 nothing like what we see on the page oh, no.
1: no no it was very like what you see <laughs> I mean for example um, the poems not punctuated and I wasn't quite sure why I wasn't punctuated another poem in here which is not punctuated is called sang the rat and I, I sort of wanted this feeling of impulsion Going on, but I didn't, I, I didn't know until I started doing it that that's what the poem needed. But I could see pretty quickly that actually it worked that way. Also, it's mono rhyme, it's couplets, and it's in mono rhyme, and so there's kind of insistence about it. It's no big deal, actually, really. But um, to say, you know, it sort of came to me while I was doing it, because that's the way it should work. That's the way it should be. I mean, anyone who sits down, you know, with a with a with a strong Notion of what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, you know, has already kind of boxed themselves in, you know, and and it it became apparent to me that that I wasn't punctuating, but that that had something to do with the fact that it was couplets and it pushed on. There was a kind of relentless relentlessness about it, and the monorhyme, which was head, lead, bed, you know, like a, uh, dead, <laughs> had a, a kind of you know, little hollow boom about it which which kind of, you know, helped I think the, the 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 impulsion behind it. So that there is this sort of, you know, kinetic pulse to the thing which which seemed to make it work. I, of course I revised it, I always revise, but I think mono rhyme and, and lack of punctuation were there from the outset. The thing is that rhyme often, you know, dictates content uh, quite often does because things occur to you that otherwise would not have done or things present themselves is a better way of putting it so notions images narrative you know to some degree is 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 presented to you or opportunities anyway for those things are presented because of rhyme and i like that um i, I, I like the i was going to say i like the chance in it but i don't think it is chance really you know, Jackson Pollock once said, you know, there are errors in my paintings, but no mistakes or something like that. you say that? Uh, I, th- I think that that sort of chance is not really anything to do with it could have been this or it could have been that. In the end, you can see that it had to be this.
0: And we've, we've got centuries of word histories, haven't we? And, and connotations. So the words and the rhymes that are suggested come come with all sorts of history and baggage attached to them yeah. anyway. So again it's not it's not adventitious, is it?
1: Well, no, it's not. I, I think word choice is is crucial. Word choice is where everything starts. It's it's Clay's taking a line for a walk and the first mark on the canvas, you know, describes the painting largely. Of course you revise, or you can chuck it away. But largely speaking, once you've made those first few marks on the canvas, um, the painting is beginning to describe itself. Well, it's the same with the poem. I mean, word choice matters colossally because because sound and colour palette, if you like, are all a result of, or will be a result of, uh, word choice. The nature of the poem itself, you know, will be determined by that. So given there are lots of different ways of saying the same thing, um, the choices that you make, which have to do with the kind of poet you are, Also, probably have
0: to do with how good you are
1: at it. You know,
0: um, will be crucial. You mentioned "Sang the Rat," which is one of my favourite pieces in the collection. The phrase "tour de force" is so often misused or abused, but it it just seemed to me an astonishing piece of imagination and concentration. And about the 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 millennia long coexistence of the humans and the rats and the. Can you tell me a little bit about where that? Where, how that came about
1: haven't got the foggiest, really um, I've written about the rat in the past and especially about the rat surviving when nothing else survives the rat and the cockroach
0: survive then you start with a heraldic yeah. image of the rat did that come first in the so I think I was thinking that uh, thinking of a, a, an army
1: encamped or something of that kind of the colors flying. Over the campsite, and, and these are the rats' colors. And they're flying over battle scenes as far back as Bring Glass and Totten Vale, Flodden, and then up to Rwanda, Srebrenica, Syria, and so on. And could at the moment, um, of course, be in Ukraine or Palestine. Well, it could always have been Palestine. And that came to me, and I'm not quite sure why, why the rat cropped up. But once the rat had cropped up, it became the ineradicable rat. And there's mention of the rat too in, well, there are three mentions of the rat. This long poem, which is very rhythmic, but doesn't have true rhyme. And, and then a very short poem called The Rat Again. And then in MAD 1971, which has got a bracketed sort of subtitle so about the rat. So, um, But I, I can't remember now why I started to write about the rat. But once I'd started it, just to say that one thing led to another is putting it mildly. <laughs> I just found myself assaulted by, mobbed by examples of the rat in human history, um, from the personal to the, to the rat itself. When I say personal, I don't mean what I'm really saying. What am I saying? Well, images of, images of the rat and examples of the rat and the rat's history, as it were.
0: So would there be a stage at which you would actually go and do what could be called research? You know, you'd go and look up histories of the Middle Ages or whatever in, in writing uh, a poem like that.
1: No. I sometimes make it up. <laughs> I did do some research recently for some poems I was writing, um, but they were a commission. And so it sort of made more sense to, to know what I was talking about because I was required to know what I was talking about. But I knew what I was talking about in saying the Rat, because it was my talk if you like i knew about the rat king you know when uh, rats are supposedly um, inextricably tangled their tails are inextricably ch- tangled and and are fixed with ice or blood or excrement or something and they're all trying to run in different directions and they die uh, because they can't get food and they're and they're um, they're found a rat king, it's um, six or seven or eight or ten or whatever it might be, rats bound by their tails together. And yeah, I I looked at pictures of those, but I expect I googled them. I mean, uh, I can't remember quite when I came. I knew about Philippa Flower, who was hanged as a witch, um, but I'm afraid I invented the rat's involvement with her. And I don't quite know why. There were just Pure apprehensions that there's a line albino in snow, black in ash, rose red to the open wound, and that's just an apprehension of of the rat.
0: Apprehensions in both senses of the word, in, in this poem. I remember that the the, um, the sense of something moving under the under the bed covers, which is oh, a, yeah. or, the, or the sound of a chirrup in in a, in a wall space. Yes, yeah, the
1: the slinky. Where is that? I I, I rather liked. I was rather pleased with myself when I came up with that nothing nothing else to be except the slinky of dreams as a man might wake in the night and feel that rumple under the sheet Well I tell you where this probably came from when I when I in my first marriage we were looking for a place to live and we found a flat this was in mid buckinghamshire in an old coaching house which was um, in a in a graveyard, actually. I mean, you walk through the graveyard to get to it. It's very very Plathian. Plathian. Um, and um, it was quite idyllic during the spring, late spring and summer. Um, but then, with the first frost, rats moved in. Um, the the, ho- the whole house was uh, uh, in an L shape, and the the long part of the L was sort of barns and places where coal was kept and old furniture and so on and so forth. And it was obviously, you know, rats were living there. And um, when it got cold, they moved into the house. And then I noticed the flat that we were living in, this flat we were renting, was a very old house and the floors tilted and the walls were, you know, lath and that kind of thing. It was very beautiful in its own way. There were rat holes everywhere. I mean, just everywhere. And I spent quite a lot of time... Nailing tin lids down over them, and so it made no difference at all whatsoever. So, of course, we had to get out, uh, but we couldn't get out I- I- immediately, and so we spent something like two months in this uh, rat-infested flat, and it was pretty terrifying, actually. I was quite traumatised by that. I what my first wife was too. <laughs> it's when the lights go out, isn't it? That's that's the scary time. It's when it. the lights go out and they run over the bed and you pitch something out in like a shoe or something. Then you hear a couple are having a fight somewhere. So, you know, so I bet it came from there. I bet that's where it came from. Yeah.
0: Take us back to 1971, David, because you, you mentioned another of the rat poems in this book. Mm. And you wrote this for a collection in which a group of poets... We were asked to write each was asked to write a poem about one of the years of the Queen's, of reign. The Queen's reign. and you didn't get
1: to choose, is that right? No, Carolann, who was the who was the <laughs> editing the anthology, Carolann Duffy, Carol-Anne dished us out our years, and you weren't allowed to say I don't want that year, but that was okay. I didn't mind that. That's like being set a task. It's a you know.
0: So when you heard you got
1: 1971, what what came to mind immediately? Absolutely nothing. So of course I Googled 1971 to discover that, of course, that, well, I, I guess I, I would have known that we were in the thick of the Cold War because I lived through it. Uh, but I also discovered that it was the uh, year of the uh, Apollo 15 moon landing, which I hadn't remembered. So there were two events I could write about. But when you get a commission, I know, I, I, I'd never accept a commission unless I know there's something in it for me. So you kind of look at su- you look at what you're being asked to do and you think, might, this be, might there be something in this for me? So then you, you sort of go for a walk, basically, I think. <laughs> you go for a walk, both literally and metaphorically. You go for a walk and notions start to occur. And if the notions that occur sort of are not pleasing or you can't see any way forward for them, then you should turn the commission down. If the notions that occur suddenly become yours, in other words, if the commission suddenly becomes yours, then that's fine. And I could see that this business of the the rat surviving everything, the rat surviving the nuclear holocaust and so on and so forth um, intrigued me because I would touched on it before in in, in other work. So that was interesting to me. Then I thought the Apollo moonshot was interesting because my wife's um, Julia Watson's um, grandmother refused to believe that, that men had landed on the moon. Um, <laughs> she just quite simply didn't think it was possible. And there was something mysterious. I could see why she didn't think it was possible, because there was something mysterious about that invasion of a symbol as potent as the moon. I mean, I'm currently writing a piece with Bert Whistle called The Cure, which is a pre European moment in the Medea story. And the moon is crucial. <laughs> what's going on there but it it it's a sort of you know i and i was thinking the other day is this is this a pre moonshot moon you know is this a moon of the at of the very latest or sort of late 19th century is this <laughs> and yes it sort of is so there are two moons now there's a moon that was landed on and may well be shortly exploited and have its mineral wealth removed and there'll be squabbles about who actually owns it but there's another moon which is selene which is which is to do with the, the symbol of the hair that most cultures see in the moon, which is to do with the fact that the Saxon moon goddess carried a large silver shield and wore a hair's cape on and so on and so forth. It, it doesn't seem to me that science and technology have destroyed that. It's still, it's still there. So I've got this notion of men on the moon and what it was for them to be there. Now, I know that they were all hard-nosed technicians and scientists and so on and so forth. But I wanted to kind of, I I found myself transforming them. And then there was the business of, of 1971 itself, which if you add the digits, reduces to the number nine, which is a magical number. And any number that you multiply by nine will reduce in that same way when its digits are added. It'll come back to 9. So 9 performs magic on any number. Exactly. If you multiply, well, 9, 9s are 81, 81 is 9. It's a very crude way of putting it, but it's a very simple way, I should say, of of demonstrating that. Uh, But sure, uh, if you multiply, you know, 643,721 by 9, if you add the digits, you will at the end get 9. So I'm not not, uh, somebody who's deeply interested in numerology, but that interests me. So, so there were the three sort of aspects in this. There was the MAD, of course, stands for mutually assured destruction. Uh, this was the notion that uh, the balance of power would save us all, and it sort of did in a kind of way. It? But um, so I started with that, and and the business of you know, were there a a nuclear holocaust, the rat would survive, and no, nothing else would survive. And then we come back to the rat at the end. And between those two appearances of the rat, there's an interpersonal aspect to it. There's a kind of celebratory almost aspect to it. And then the moon landing, in which the astronauts are not exactly themselves. (laughs) And then this business of the number nine. And so it's a circularity to the poem. Shall I read it? Yeah, okay. So it's MAD 1971, rat run in brackets. It's in three parts. It will be the rat, he told her, the rat that first emerges from the crud and crap after the infinite rapture of the megaton strike, its head slick with what it burrowed through, what fell, what kept it fed. You and I will close and fuse, bone seared to bone, flesh folded in. Our silhouette will print the wall one subterfuge, one skin, joined as never before, but joined, as we would have wished, in sin. There were men in the seas of the moon, the great hare lay dead. What they seemed to speak were broken lines of some unbroken code. What they seemed to hear was the voice of God, Howling in the void. Earth was a rolling abstract, Its blue-white trappings dense in darkness. They named it Terra Nullius. They were drenched in starlight, deadlight. They scuffed the dust as they danced. It's nine, he told her. Can you see? Nine, which multiplied by any number, Reduces again to nine. Vows of the woodland bride, Choirs of angels, Fleshly portals, Nine versions of the road to Gethsemane. Bad luck, of course, to dream in nines, But it can only have been in sleep That I saw them. Rat clones in a whirlwind of ash, the City Burnout, The Broken Stones.
0: David Harsent was reading MAD 1971, Rat Run, from his latest collection, Fire Songs. That concludes part one of this two part Faber Poetry podcast. For more information about all of David Harsent's books, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll find videos of David reading more poems from Fire Songs, which we recorded after this interview. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews, and includes several Faber poets, among them Joe Shapcott, Michael Hoffman, Christopher Reed, and Don Patterson. Just search for Faber Books Soundcloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.